0: Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are just beginning a study of the little epistle of Jude. So far we have seen that the writer is Jude, the half-brother of Yeshua and the brother of James, the James that was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And Jude's purpose in writing is to warn the church. False teachers have entered into the church and are corrupting it And he's warning the church against this. Jude begins his epistle by calling his readers the called, the loved, and the kept. And this triad speaks of our security as believers. Because the Father loved you, the Spirit called you, and Christ keeps you. The Trinity is involved in your security, and that's security, people. Now I've mentioned in the past studies that Jude loves these triads. Well, in verse 1, he speaks of a triad of brothers. The complete Jewish Bible puts it this way. From Yehuda, a slave of Yeshua the Messiah, and brother of Yaakov. So we have Yehuda, Yeshua, and Yaakov. These three brothers start out the triad. You know, and we also see in these relationships, there's different forms here. You have a slave, you have a Lord, and you have a brother together so like I said he loves to use these things he goes on in the same verse to to call them the called the loved and the kept this threefold description again and then from this he follows a threefold prayer for mercy he says may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you now I said and I think it was our first study that there are 14 triads in this book but I was going over it this week, and I see see 20 of them, all right? Well, there's two in the first verse, all right? There's 20 triads, depending on how you look at this, in 25 verses. I mean, what is his point? What is he trying to do? Why does he keep doing this? You know, well, of course, we really can't be sure, but it's obvious that three is important to him, all right? Now, remember, to a Hebrew, numbers are first and foremost symbolic. Greeks see numbers primary as quantity, but to the Hebrew, numbers are primary quality. They're symbolic. To us, they're simply three. But to the Hebrew mind, that three represents something. One of the interesting features of Hebrew and Greek is that both written languages, there are no numerical characters, all right? They use their letters for numbers. So they only have letters. So in each of those languages, the letters are also used for numbers. Now, in a small way, I guess we kind of do that to some extent, because what is this? Is that a number or a letter? How would you know? (laughs) Well, really, you know, the only way to know is by the context, right? You're reading it, hopefully the context would help you, unless... It's in a VIN number, all right? You know, in our VIN numbers, there's letters that they don't use. They don't use I- O, they don't use I, and they don't use Q. Those, you'll never find those in a VIN. And I'm not really sure why that is, you know, but I guess they just wanted, I don't know why the Q is. I know the O and the I, but I'm not sure wh- how the Q got involved in that, But because there's no context in a VIN number, you know? So you just, they're letters and numbers, Seventeen of them, you got to figure out what's what. So they took those out to try to keep the confusion from going on. But to the Hebrews and the Greeks, they understood when their letters were numbers, they understood that. They they had that figured out. Now, in Scripture, the number three represents something in its completeness. It's the number of divine perfection. The Trinity consists of three Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three qualities of the universe. You've got time space, and matter. The number three is used 467 times in the Bible. Uh, and this number usually indicates something of importance or significance in God's plan of salvation by identifying an important event in salvation history. Let me give you just a few of these threes. Like I said, there's 463 times it's used, but let me just give you a few of them just to get the feel of it. In the Tanakh, we start out with the three righteous patriarchs before the flood who were Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Then after the flood, you got the righteous fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was later named Israel. There were three divisions of the desert tabernacle and later three divisions of the temple in Jerusalem. You had the outer court, you had the holy place, and then the most holy place. God is mentioned three times in the Shema, the old covenant profession of faith in Deuteronomy 6.4. Of the seven annual feasts of Yahweh, three of them are what are called pilgrim feasts. On a pilgrim feast, every male, 13 years and older, had to present himself before Yahweh at the sanctuary and later at the temple in Jerusalem. And this command to do this is repeated three times in Scripture. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish. Jonah took three days to journey across the city of Nineveh. And then you come to the New Testament. There's how many books in the New Testament? 27. Three times three times three. So you got completeness to the third power. There were only three individuals who witnessed Yeshua's transfiguration on Mount Hermon. And those who saw His glory there were Peter, James, and John. Yeshua prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane for His arrest. He was placed on the cross at the third hour of the day. He died at the ninth hour at 3 p.m. So there were three hours of darkness that covered the land while Yeshua was suffering on the cross. Christ was dead for three days and three nights before being resurrected. Yeshua's ministry lasted three years, covering three Passovers. Remember when Saul was blinded on the road to Damascus, he was blinded for three days. <laughs> All right? So three is an important number in Scripture. I think that's clear. And I think, you know, Jude, Yehudah, being a Hebrew, and that's why I like using their Hebrew names, because I want to just remind you, these guys are not Gentiles. These are Jews, all right? So to you doth, three is important. But why does he use these triads? What's he trying to say? This is a unique style of writing here. What's he trying to do? Well, maybe he's using it to validate what he's saying. Validity of testimony in the Tanakh is affirmed by the mouth of what? Two or three witnesses right for example Deuteronomy 19:15 a single witness shall not rise against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed that's a safeguard people for us right on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed having a multiple witnesses is a safeguard you keep someone who's mad at that person from lying you know hopefully you can't get 3 to lie together about it that's the idea of having this protection ecclesiastes 4 12 says if one can overpower him who is alone two can resist him right i mean if you're just by yourself it's kind of hard but you got someone with you maybe you can but a cord he says of three strands is not quickly torn apart you got three against one you're probably in pretty good shape all right and then as we get in the new testament we see the same principle in matthew 18 he says but if he does not listen to you this is the context here of uh, church discipline your brother sinned and you know you go to him himself first But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So again, we see the power of three witnesses. Now, do you remember what Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20? He calls the elders, he wants to warn them, and he says this in verse 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So he's warning these elders, these people are going to come, these savage wolves are going to be among you. In other words, they're going to be elders. They'll be in the midst of the eldership, there'll be some, he says, among your own selves, men will arise. And he's talking to the elders when he says this. Now, with that in mind, Look at what Paul tells Timothy, who is at Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 5.19, he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So those who Jude is warning of may be those in church leadership. He may be talking to this group about elders in their midst, so he's following the biblical injunction to use three witnesses. And he just does this throughout the whole letter. Now, of course, this is speculation on my part, okay? I can't prove this, but it makes sense to me. All right, with that said, let's look at our text. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Be multiplied, there is a verb in the optative mood, which expresses a wish. And in the New Testament, this is often used as a prayer. So basically, Yehuda is praying for this audience, I'm I, wishing, I'm praying that you would have mercy and peace and love. These things would be multiplied to you. Now, this is one of those introductions that's really very familiar. You know, they have these salutations all through the epistles, these greetings. And we just tend to read through them. Ah, yeah, mercy, peace, love. Okay, let's go on, go on. The, over and over you see these in the epistles. You don't see it in the Gospels. You don't see it in Acts. But starting with Romans and going through most of the epistles and in Revelation, you have this this greeting. And it's not just, you know, I need some more words to throw in here. It's important stuff that he's talking about. He's talking about the mercy of God, the peace of God, the love of God. Kind of important. And we see this, like I said, several places. Let me give you a couple examples. 2 Thessalonians. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Colossians. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God the Father. So this greeting in Jude is very typical except for one thing. What's different about this greeting than any other greeting in the New Testament? Anybody see it? There's something missing from this greeting. Grace. Grace. This is the only Greeting in the New Testament that does not have grace in it. That's interesting, isn't it? Everybody use it. Why doesn't Jude use it? I think it may have deliberately been left out because of the false teachers had corrupted this concept. And look what he says in verse 4. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. They're destroying grace, so he doesn't even use grace. Which is very interesting, like I said. Every other greeting has it but this one. Alright, so this mercy, this peace, this love, all come from Yahweh, and Jude prays that they would know it in abundance. Let's just take a minute and look at these words, because, like I said, too often we can fly through these greetings, and just basically it's like saying hello and go on. But, you know, the Lord put this there for a reason. Uh, Mercy here is the Greek word eleos, and it means to help one afflicted or seeking aid. To bring help to the wretched. Mercy is the outward manifestation of pity, and the verb signifies a feeling of sympathy with the misery of another, especially when manifested in action. Eleos, has within it the idea of living from others. Now, I want you to hang on to that thought, okay? Mercy, living from others. Do you see that connection there? Do you understand maybe where they get that from? There's a Greek word called elemosonary. You ever heard of You Maybe you're familiar with um, elemosonary institutions. They would be the Red Cross, uh, United Fund. What's another... Elemasonary institution you can think of? Okay. How about another one closer to home? Berean Bible Church. Okay. <laughs> Berean Bible Church is an elemasonary institution. We live from others. Right? That's, that's how we get by. All right? So elemasonary institutions are institutions that live by contributions. That is, they live by the contributions of others. So we receive mercy from God to live from another. We've been given mercy that contains within it the payment for our sins by the Lord Yeshua the Christ, which is life. He took our death. He gave us his life. Salvation, giving us salvation is an act of God's mercy. Our salvation is not merit. It is mercy. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Our life comes from the mercy of God. in showing pity to us. We live because of Him. So according to Yahweh's great mercy, He causes us to be born again. Now, let's look at the word peace. Before we can really understand peace... We have to realize that man has no peace. Alright? Isaiah 48, 22 says, There is no peace for the wicked, says Yahweh. Alright? There's enmity between unsaved man and God. Only the believer has peace with God. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, having been justified, past tense, because you've been justified by your faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord, Yeshua the Christ. That is just a loaded verse there. We have peace with God. What does that mean? It means the war is over. It means that God is no longer our enemy. He is no longer promising judgment or death to us. It's a new status between God and the believer that flows from the reconciliation accomplished by Yeshua the Christ. Look at Colossians 1.20. And through Him, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through him I say, whether things in earth or things in heaven. So he's made peace. He is reconciled. You know, whenever you hear the word reconciliation, you're talking about something being wrong, right? If you say, hey, so-and-so and so-and-so, they, they got reconciled. And your first thing is, what was wrong? Because you know something had to be wrong because that's what reconciliation is. People, they got problems. Reconciliation presupposes conflict, hostility, difficulty. Making peace is establishing harmony. Yeshua put an end to the disturbed relationships between God and man. He restored believing man into God's fellowship. Before we came to trust Christ, we were God's enemies because of sin. But Yeshua destroyed the enmity between God and man with his work on the cross. and We have peace. In Hebrew, I think most of you know the Hebrew word for peace. Shalom, Jews most often a restitution. It means to make someone whole. That's the idea. It literally means to make one whole or complete. And often you'll hear people in a messianic congregation saying Shalom Aleichem. And basically it's a great greeting because it means may you be whole and complete. That's a great thing, you know. And what makes you whole and complete? Well, the thing that makes us whole and complete is the right relationship with God and walking in fellowship with Him. So, you know, you want to encourage somebody, say, Shalom Aleichem. All right? May you have everything you need and be whole and complete. Everything you need. Okay? Not everything you greed. Not everything you greed. Okay? Huge difference there. All right? And then he talks about love. This is the Greek word, agape. God's love is not dependent on anything in you. Listen to this. Because there's nothing in you worth loving. Okay? Now, I don't want to insult your pride or your vanity, but God didn't love you because you're so special. Okay? He loved you because He is love. Look at Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. Us here is who? Believers. Christians. In that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me tell you something you might not know. This is the first time in the New Testament where we're told that God loves us. This is the first time. Now, the belief of our day is that God loves everybody, right? But that's a modern belief. You can search the writings of the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans. They'll be searched in vain for that concept. You're not going to find it. The fact is, the love of God is a truth for saints only. With the exception of John 3.16, not one verse in the four Gospels do we read of the Lord Yeshua telling sinners that God loved them. You know, the Lord's out there on an evangelistic campaign. He never tells anybody, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't do that. Now, in the book of Acts, which the book of Acts basically is recording the evangelistic efforts of the apostles, right? They're spreading the gospel. God's love is never referred to once. The word love doesn't appear in the book of Acts. Does that seem odd to you? But when you come to the epistles, which are addressed to the saints, we have a full presentation of the truth. Now, isn't that weird to hear you got the book of Acts all about evangelism? They're taking the gospel and they're reaching the world. And they don't talk about the love of God they didn't read the track, Smile, God Loves You and Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life. They didn't know that. They weren't running around telling people that. Why? Because they didn't know. They're just presenting the gospel. The ones God loved would come. But today, that's the number one thing in evangelism. Do you know that God loves you? And I was like, how do you know? Because he loves everybody. That's the standard belief today. So therefore, since God loves everybody, he loves you. And that's how we do evangelism. It's totally backwards. It's not where you start. You start with, you are under the wrath of God. That's where you start. Not with God loves you. Because if God loves you, cool, I'm good with that. You know? I don't need any more of it. All right, so we have here mercy, peace, and love. Mercy is from God the Father, who is called the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. In 2 Corinthians 1.3. Peace is from the Son, for He is our peace. Ephesians 2.14 and love is from the Spirit. Romans 5.5 5, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us. So again, you have the Trinity involved in salvation. And like I said, Yodahi just keeps using this Trinity over and over. These triads bring the Trinity into play. Now, I said all these are attributes of Yahweh. All these are attributes that He has demonstrated toward us. But because Yahweh loves us, we're to be like Him. We're to be like our Father. So I want to share with you what William Barclay defines agape as. Just for our own personal edification. Like Again, these mercy, peace, and love are talking about what God has done for us. But we are also, because He's done this, we are to love one another. I read this from Barclay and I thought this is is definitely worth sharing. It says, the real meaning of agape is unconquerable benevolence. If I If we regard a person with agape, it means that nothing he can do will make us seek anything but his highest good. Okay, if that's true, then guess what? You know right away who you love and don't love, don't you? Though he injure us and insult us, we will never feel anything but kindness toward him. That quite clearly means that this Christian love is not an emotional thing. This agape is a thing not only of the emotions, but also of the will. It is the ability to retain unconquerable good will to the unlovely and unlovable, towards those who do not love us and even towards those we do not like. Agape is that quality of mind and heart which compels a Christian never to feel any bitterness, never to feel any desire for revenge, but always to seek the highest good of every man, no matter what, no matter what he may be. That's pretty convicting stuff. All right. God loves us, therefore He calls us to love one another. Just an idea on, of what it's talking about here. All right. But let's go back to the text now. He says, "I want the mercy, I want the peace, I want the love to be multiplied to you." And multiplied here is the aorist passive optative of the verb plethuno. And it means to cause to increase, not by adding, but by a much greater scale. That's why they use multiplication. And the idea is, may it have a constantly increasing amount of this? Now, what does it mean for these things to be multiplied? I mean, when a person becomes a believer, God gives them a new heart. He translates them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And once that's taken place, hasn't God already bestowed abundantly his mercy, peace, and love to the fullest degree? That is, I mean, once your sins have been paid for, once they're all forgiven, once God has given that person the gift of eternal life, how much more mercy can he give you? How much more love can he give you? How much more peace? There's no further sins to cover. Each and every one of us. All of our sins, whether past, present or future, were paid for by Christ on the cross. You know, people think they get saved and God covered my past sins. I gotta take care of the rest of myself. You're in trouble if you've got to take care of anything by yourself, okay? So if God demonstrated this love toward us and gave us his mercy, what how can it be multiplied? How do we get more? We can't get more saved, do we? What's he talking about? Well, I think the answer may be found in 2 Peter 1, where he says this grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the knowledge of God and Yeshua our Lord. It's not that God is going to bestow more mercy on you. Or that he's going to give you more peace. Or he's going to give you more love. But it's as you spend time in the word of God. You begin to learn what these things really mean. You begin to see your sins. You begin to see the holiness of God. And mercy takes on a new light to you. And you grow in this knowledge. But this only happens through the knowledge of God. And that only comes through the Word of God. And the more we understand, the more these things are multiplied. I mean, the more you, you know, the more you understand the depth of your sin, really who you are. You start out in this Christian life, you're thinking, I'm okay, but God helped me out, good, you know. But as you really get in the Bible, you see, I'm a wretch. And he loved me. And mercy is multiplied. And you begin to just be more and more thankful and grateful. And that is multiplied to you. You have peace with God. But man, when you start understanding what he has done and how secure you are in Christ, that peace is just magnified. So these things come to us as we grow in our knowledge of people. This only happens as you spend time in the Word of God. All right, let's move on. We've got another verse to cover this morning. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing to you that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. This is one of the very interesting introductions to the epistle because Jude tells us, I sat down to write one thing, I changed and wrote something else. Well, what's going on here? Well, the word beloved here is the Greek word agapetos. This is a term of affection, he uses it in verse 17. He says, but beloved. He uses it in verse 20. But you, beloved. It's used 60 times in the New Testament. The first nine times by Yahweh to Christ. And the rest of them only for believers. Believers, we are beloved. That's a great place to be. All right, so he's writing. And he starts out by using this term of affection. Beloved. He says, well, I was making every effort to write you. The word effort here is spoude." At times it's translated as hurry. Uh, for example, Mary went to the hill country in a hurry, Luke 139 says. Here hear the words kind of speaking of the idea of urgency. Spudé can refer to swiftness of movement or action, but it also can refer to this urgency. I can refer to this earnest commitment. I sat down, I was, I was really making this effort to write you. The word write, grapho, from graph. It basically means to scratch or engrave. He's just scratching out these things to them. I want you to know this stuff. I'm making an effort to write this to you. He says, I'm going to write you about our common salvation. This is interesting. The word common here is koinos. All right. Uh, Let's look at the use of it in Acts 10. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Unholy there is koinos. So Jude sat down to write to us about our unholy salvation. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying at all, all right? And this is where you get in danger if you take nothing but a concordance to study the Bible, all right? You can't use just a concordance. You have to understand how the writer uses the words. It's not just about etymology. You've got to trace the words, and some words are used differently in different contexts. So you have to be careful. Look at Acts 4. He uses this word again, Acts 4.32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. Isn't that amazing? They didn't say mine. They said ours. <laughs> okay, ours. But all things were common property to them. So they had one heart because they had one heart. Everything was common to them. They had all things common. This is the point that God's trying to make regarding our salvation. We are all partakers of that one heart. He said in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, 19, it was a promise. I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them. I will take out the heart of stone out of their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh. That's the promise of the new covenant. We have one heart. It is a common salvation. All who trust in Christ share this common grace of God. We share a common faith in Yeshua the Christ. Bless you. (laughs) Notice Paul's greeting to Titus. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. All believers share a common faith. A common salvation. Again, common is koinos and the verbal form being koinonia. Fellowship. Share. Thus the idea of a common salvation possessed in common. And I think here when he's talking about a common salvation it's something we all share. He is referring specifically to Jews and Gentiles. It's not a Jew salvation. You know, this is not a Gentile salvation. This is a common salvation. We all Share in this, together. So Jude began to write to them, these believers, a treaty on soteriology. All right, Probably as a reminder of the gospel that they learned from Paul, that it was the true gospel, hence it's our common salvation. But then he gets his news of these heretics infiltrating the church. And so it kind of changes his plans. And now he, he, he turns to write to them and he starts to appeal to them to stand their ground and fight for their faith. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you. He's writing this epistle about salvation and his thoughts get interrupted. Something interrupts him. He has a change of mind. He moves from salvation to what we might call polemics. all right, Uh, Moral polemics. From soteriology to apologetics. He's defending the faith now. Being a necessity has to do with God's constraining power as he'd move his prophets to write the scripture. He says... It's, it's a necessity. i got to do this. We see this in 2 Peter one twenty one, where he says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. In other words, men didn't come up with this on their own. Watch what it says. But men moved by the Holy Spirit. The word moved here has the idea of born along. It's like if you take a stick and throw it in a river that's moving, what happens to that stick? It's just born along. That's the idea. These men are born along by the Holy Spirit. And Jude is giving us some insight into what it means to be moved by the spirit here. He gave all diligence to write. It was needful for him to write. He couldn't prevent it. He couldn't hold back. This makes me think of Jeremiah, the prophet, who said this. But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then my heart. Becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding in and I cannot endure it. He tried not to speak of God. He couldn't do it. The word of God constrained Jeremiah. He felt a tremendous need to share. And that's what Jude is saying here. I felt a tremendous need to write this to you. So Jude's mind changed. We're not sure why. Maybe he got a messenger. Maybe someone came to him. Maybe just the spirit of God opened his mind to this. But all of a sudden, he realized, i got to write something else. i got to write something else. He could have just left that part out and just wrote the, the thing he was told to write. But he said, I started writing here. He's, he's showing us urgency, people. I wanted to write you about the common salvation, this great salvation we got. But i got an urgency here. I felt it needful to change. All of a sudden, he is just compelled to do this. I felt the necessity. It's a very strong word. Paul used the same expression in 1 Corinthians 9.16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I don't preach. It's just this compelling from inside. I'm compelled to do this. You've felt that in certain things. You've been compelled to do something. You're like, I just feel real strongly about this. They're compelled. Paul's compelled to preach. Jude is compelled to write. He says, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Now contend earnestly, is ep agonizomai, which the root of it is agonizomai. All right, basically a combination. The ep just adds intensity to it. We find agonizomai in 1 Timothy six twelve, where he says, "Fight the good fight of faith." Same word, agonizomai. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The word fight again, agonizomai. It's a key part of this contend earnestly. To contend earnestly is to fight for the faith. It's a fight. It's strenuous. You're to defend it vigorously. I'm calling you to an extreme form of agony. It's a present infinitive, which means it's continuous action. I'm calling on you. I'm appealing to you to be in an ongoing battle, a continual conflict. For what? He says, for the faith. Now, what exactly is the faith that we're to fight for? Because if we've got to fight for it, I think we ought got to understand it, right? I don't believe he's talking about a list of doctrines here that we might find in a theological book. I think he's talking about the sum of what Christians believe. Approximately one half of the 38 occurrences of the specific phrase, the faith, don't refer to the act of believing, but rather to what is believed. Robertson remarks that the faith refers to the gospel, It means more than an individual's trust in Christ. So he's talking about the gospel as the faith. Not the extensive doctrinal development that we've seen through the history of Christianity. He's talking about the essentially the Christian message of salvation through Yeshua the Christ. Just a basic gospel. What was given to them, that's what they're to defend. That's what they're to fight for. What that means is that the message is unchangeable. It's the unchangeable, regulative message of the Christian gospel. It's not invented. It's something that's handed down. When John wrote his second epistle, notice what he said in verse 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. So there is a basic bottom line of what the gospel is, that you are to stay there. You've got to abide in that. You can't go too far. You can't go beyond that. Some people add to this. Some people take away from this. You can't do either one. All right? One one example of people adding to the gospel today is, if your eschatology is preterism, you're not a Christian. That's adding to the gospel. Because where in the gospel is that you have to have the correct eschatology to be saved? Boy, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't it? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have all your theology figured out, and you shall be saved. We'd have to all go to theological school just so we could become a Christian. But that's you know that's the ridiculous thing that people say. Well, you're you're you know you're your eschatology is wrong. You can't be a Christian. What? How nuts is that? Well, the faith was delivered to the saints through the apostles. All right. We see that in Ephesians three three through five. That by revelation there was made known to me, Paul saying, the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Now here he's talking specifically about the mystery of Jew and Gentile being one in the body of Christ. No separation, no distinction, one. He's talking about this mystery that was delivered to him. The faith is constituted in the apostles' doctrine. It's the objective faith. In Acts 2.42 it says they continued in the apostles' doctrine. We must contend for the gospel because there are many who are seeking to destroy it. Notice what Jude says about the faith. He says, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Speaking of the gospel, once for all. The original text puts it like this. Once for all delivered to the saints' faith. Once for all is the Greek hapax, which refers to something done for all times with lasting results. Never needing repetition. The Christian faith, the gospel in its entirety, in its completeness, was in the past entrusted to the church. (coughs) Excuse me. People, there's no new faith and there's no new revelation. And anybody tells you they got a new revelation, you say I'm hanging on to the saint, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I don't need anything new. It was deposited through the apostles and those who worked with them in the first century. Now he says it was handed down. This is paradidomi in the Greek, it comes from para, meaning alongside, along the side of didomi to give conveys the basic meaning to give over from one's hand something. It was handed down. It wasn't something manufactured. It wasn't something they created. They were given this. They received the message of salvation, the faith from the apostles. Now they need to fight to preserve it. Because there's people coming into the church that are trying to destroy this. Now to anyone, or any school of thought, or any group of teachers that say there's something missing in our understanding of Christianity today, The Scriptures say they're wrong. It was handed down once for all. The faith that saves, the gospel of Yeshua was delivered in its entirety once. Now this destroys forever the view that there's such a thing as a latter-day revelation from God or some new revelation to what He's already revealed in the Bible. We don't need that. Because we have the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. You know, many have tried to come along since this time, and claim that the original church missed something. The apostles missed something. First, it was the Judaizers. Yes, you have to believe, but you also have to do this. They wanted to add something to the gospel. Then it was the Gnostics. You know, they came along in the 2nd century, and they're trying to add something. Then you got the Catholic church that made claim over the centuries, you know, you have to have a word from the Pope. Directly comes from God. He speaks directly, you know, and you get this new word. They're still doing that today, all right? They're not even believing the Bible anymore, but they're getting new stuff, okay? Yeah. (laughs) Mormons make that claim. JWs make that claim. Christian Science makes that claim. Many have made the claim, but Scripture says that all we need to understand came through Yeshua and the prophets. All of it. I think the biggest destroyer of the gospel in our day is the health-wealth gospel. Because it makes the gospel no longer a message of sin. It makes the gospel no longer a message of Christ's righteousness and the need to reconcile with God. In its place, the faith becomes a promise of wealth, a promise of health, a promise of acceptance and happiness, or some other worthless, meaningless, temporal, utterly bankrupt principle in the place of our eternal salvation by grace through faith in Yeshua the Christ. And it's ridiculous. But people are flocking to it because it's so attractive. Believe in Christ and you can have all the money you need. Believe in Christ and you'll never be sick. You'll be healthy. Everything will be wonderful. And people just, those churches are packed. They're slam full. I go by one when I go to pick my mother up in the morning. Drive right by one. It's 8.30 in the morning. The church parking lots overflowed. The streets are lined with cars. You know, people are walking from blocks and blocks because they have to park to get to this place. And I want to stop. I see people walking in the morning. I want to say, no, don't go. There's nothing there you need. Nothing. And people do that. There's people at Joel Osteen's church every Sunday picketing. Please turn around. You need something more. You know, this guy's not giving you anything. But he people love that message, all right? They love to hear that God, you know, He loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be healthy. So if you're sick, something's wrong. You know, come on, get with the faith. It's destroying the gospel people because people are buying into this, and then they're not getting wealthy, and they're not, and they're sick, until they just feel that this whole thing is a sham. It's not about that. You know, if it's a health wealth gospel, Paul really, really missed the boat. I mean, this guy was so off base, it wasn't funny. You know? I mean, beat, shipwreck, went through all kinds of things. He wasn't preaching that message at all. He wasn't preaching any health, wealth message. You know what one of the biggest signs of a cult is? It's the fact that they have a prophet or somebody who says they're adding to the revelation. They got some new word. They got some new special stuff. You know... They're giving you something different. And the charismatic movement's great for this, all right? So-and-so got a revelation. Was this equal with the Bible? Yeah. Okay, wait a minute. Let me get my pen out then. Because we got to make some addendums here. All right, we got to add some stuff, all right? And then I gotta hear your word, and I gotta go here in his this guy's word, and I gotta put all these. No, we don't need any of that. We have a once-for-all delivered to the saints faith. Amen. It's sealed, it's final. It's Amen. just pick up the book and it's in there. Everything you need to know. You don't need to run around all these prophets and find out what the new word is, what the new secret is. You don't need any of that. You know, theology within the word of God may evolve. It can evolve because theology is our understanding of the word of God. But the word of God itself never changes. Our understanding of it does. Sometimes we learn things and we say, I was wrong there, I got to change here. But God's word doesn't. It's sealed in its contents. It's sealed in its... Authorship, it's sealed in its historical settings, because in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, and whether an angel, a prophet, a priest, whoever preaches any other gospel, Paul says, let him be anathema. Let him be devoted to destruction for preaching another gospel, because the gospel is so important. It is what delivers, it is what saves people. We can't mess this thing up. Well, who is this faith handed down to? He says, to the saints, a special group appointed by the Catholic Church, right? You got to have a couple miracles, I think, and you got to do, and then you get to be, you get to be sainthood, okay? Let me tell you what, people, this is so, you know, people really mess the word of God up. Saint, The word saints there is hagios, holy ones. It just means to those that are holy. Who's holy? Everyone in Christ, everyone who believes the gospel. All right, every believer is a saint. There's not served people more saintly than other people. They might act more saintly, but they're all saints, all right? And that's why he addresses. When Paul addresses the Corinthians, he says, to the saints by calling. God called you to be a saint. What a way to start out the letter to that messed up group, you know? And I'm going to write them. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say, you idiots, get your act together. No, he says, you're saints. And then you know what he says? Live like who you are, basically. That's all he does. He doesn't beat people up and smack them over the head. He just says, you know who you are? Gives them their identity. Once you know your identity, you want to live out who you are. All believers are saints. All right, let me ask you. What about Christians today? Do we still have the responsibility to contend earnestly for the faith? Or is this a thing of the past? Was it just for the first century? Well, Jude was writing... To the Hebrews, basically, it's a Hebrew epistle. Yaakov, he's writing to these people. Yehuda, he's writing to them. So does it apply to us? I believe that every one of us who know the Lord Yeshua is to be fighting for the truth. We're in a truth war. And the world, for the most part, doesn't want to hear it. That's one of the problems. But we're in a truth war. And I think this truth war involves two things. This fight that we have for the truth. Number one, we're to be standing for the truth. That means we know the scripture and we're teaching others the truth of the gospel. We're opposing false and erroneous doctrine through the word of God. That's first and foremost. Secondly, this is important. We're to all be agonizing in our own life to be obedient to the truth. We're contending for the faith through personal sacrifice and discipline so that we live a holy, righteous life before God. Because when you're preaching one thing and living something else, you know what they call that? Hypocrisy. Okay. And if there's one thing the world thinks about the church, it's that they're a bunch of hypocrites. They don't need more ammunition. We need to contend for the truth, but we need to flesh out the truth. Every day. What we say, what we do, we have to honor the Word of God by living it. And then when you preach it, there's power behind that because they're looking at you and they're saying, He's doing it, he lives a holy life, he's talking about, he knows what he's talking about. But when you're, like I said, you're saying one thing and living something else. Mm. I remember when I worked for the government, I went to a man that worked in the same shop I did. He said he was a Christian, he preached the gospel. He was always talking about Jesus to everybody who came and called I went to him, I said, Would you do me a favor? He said, What's that? I said, Would you shut your mouth? Quit talking about the Lord to everybody. He just looked at me stunned. He goes, what? Are you, I thought you were a Christian. I am a Christian. Why do you want me to not talk? Because your life is such a mess that you're being a hypocrite. And he was an ungodly, unrighteous man. I mean, just, you know, but he was always preaching to God. And, the, and all the unbelievers were confused. What is this? So I thought I'd be nice and share it with him, you, you know? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't get really accepted real well when you do stuff like that. But, you know, I mean, I think that's part of contending for the truth, you know? It, you're, uh, there's nothing, like I said, the, the world already looks at us as Christians. We're all hypocrites, all right? That's what they view us. And for the most part, we've given them every reason to say that, okay? So don't condemn them. The fault goes back to the church. When we start living who we're supposed to be, you know, when, when they, we live out the agape that Barclay talked about earlier, when we're living that out, they're going to take notice, okay? The world will take notice of that. When we're living righteous, holy lives, when we're contending for the faith and living how we should be, we're going to be able to say what Paul does in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He sees his life as a libation being poured out before God on the the altar. He says, and the time of my departure has come. Is he crying about it? Please pray for me. I don't want to die. No, he says, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. What a great thing to get to the end of the life and say, I finished, my course is over, I'm ready to go. We are all involved, people, in a fight for truth. Let's be faithful warriors in that battle. Jude's audience was being attacked, our audience today, people today in this culture especially are being attacked. All that God wanted to say and all that he did, he put in this book. That just keeps it simple, you know? You don't need anybody else's input. Just get in here and find out what the book says. You don't need a new revelation. You don't need a special end time prophecy. The book is all we need. Scripture's everything. You don't need to be running around checking about every revelation somebody's got, because there are always new ones, you know? Always new. You don't need to be listening to God for some new, I need some new insight. No, just learn what's in that book already. We want it easy. God, just tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll go do it. You know don't want to have to spend the time working and spend the time in the book. It's all in the Bible, but it's our responsibility to read it, to study it, to meditate upon it, and to fight for it. We're not only proclaimers of the truth, but we're to be protectors of the truth. This gospel was once for all handed down to the saints. And the saints have a responsibility to live it and protect it and people, we could make a change if we flesh this out. But again, a hypocrite doesn't have much to say to anybody. They're just not listening. All right? They've got to see the truth. All right? Let me just throw out something. Let me quit preaching and go to Medlin for one second here. All right? We talked about this earlier. But one of the big things that we see in American Christianity is complaining, whining and complaining about our lives. We have the best, incredible circumstances in this country, and we whine and complain more about it than anybody on the planet. And Gary suggested we're going to add a new section on Sunday mornings called Voice of the Whiner, okay? And you can get up and whine about how rough your life was this week, you know? I mean, it's just sad because people are listening. And when you're talking to a Christian, how's it going? You're like, oh man! And you're like, wow! I thought he was supposed to know God and have, you know, just nothing there. You know, and they're like, I got that already. I don't need what he's got. Just a small area, but I think we could work on. We could change because our life is to be continual offering of sacrifices of praise to the Lord. Let's pray, Father. We thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your Word. Lord, I thank you that you have given us so much in our salvation. I thank you that the gospel that was delivered was delivered once for all. And we have a responsibility, Lord, to live it out, to carry it out. Father, give us a boldness, as we heard this morning from the voice of the martyrs. May we be bold in sharing the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Christ. Lord, I thank you for what you've given us. Amen.